Jeremiah chapter 30. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that we can actually begin and end the day in your word. And Lord, I these chapters have a lot to say to us this evening just about your heart for us and our future. And I just pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would give us that picture of of your heart, Lord, that only the Word of God and really only by the Spirit of God can our hearts really embrace it. Your word says, Lord, this evening we'll read it. It says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness I have drawn you. And that you have, Lord. You have drawn us. And Lord, we have so many just road signs throughout our lives of of you just so clearly where you drew us to yourself, where you moved, where you acted, where you made yourself clear to us. And I pray in Jesus' name that even as we're in the Word tonight, you'd continue to show us again your heart, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 30, verse 1 says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaks the, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, write in a book for yourselves all the words that I have spoken to you. So why do we have this book that we're looking at today? This specifically Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah wrote them down. Sometimes people say, well, where does the Bible come from? Well, here you have it. Jeremiah wrote the words down. And it says, For behold, verse 3, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave it to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, the setting for this chapter... The setting for this chapter here, and actually uh, we, we saw it in, in the previous chapters, chapter 28, 29, is that Israel is surrounded by their enemy, Nebuchadnezzar. They, Nebuchadnezzar, has sh- uh, he's the king of the Babylonians. He ha- is showing up for the third time, the first time that he showed up, he dragged some of the Israelites, many of the princes and the nobles back to Babylon, 900 miles away, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He installed a king who he thought or took a covenant to obey him. And uh, that king rebelled. He came again, installed another king named Zedekiah, and Zedekiah ruled for 10 years, and uh, th- that king 
uh, eventually, after 10 years, rebelled. And so here Nebuchadnezzar has come a third time. All the Israelites are within the city of Jerusalem. They are walled up in the city. They have been walled up for so long. There's famine. People are starving. People are, as we'll see here, trembling with fear. And right in the midst of that, the Lord gives this prophecy. Now, Israel had been a nation. The first king was King Saul. And then after King Saul was King David, King David uh, established the messianic reign. From him came the, uh, it was the messianic reign eventually that led to, to, to Jesus Christ. And uh, as the, for about 350, 400 years, the, you know, in the, there were good kings and there were bad kings, but for the last, uh, for the last, oh, 100 years, Israel just went downhill serving foreign gods. Then there was a, a respite for about 20 years when King Josiah came in uh, where there was reform. But God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And in, in fact, we saw in the previous few chapters, he says, I sent my prophets Early in the morning and all day they prophesied to you, return to me, just return, repent, return to me. And, and still it got worse and worse. In the reign of King Manasseh, who reigned for 50 years, uh, he spilled so much innocent blood, it said the blood ran from one side of Jerusalem to the other. And that was a reference to child sacrifice, child sacrifice that they, that they did at the time. And... Uh, and so the, they were chasing after foreign gods, and foreign gods were synonymous for gods which represented the baser nature of man. For example, erotic lust. They would make a god out of erotic lust, and they would uh, worship that god through ritualized prostitution and things like that. Or the, their, the, the baser nature of of man, the, the lust for blood, and and that's where some of the child sacrifice came for, came from. And you see these prophets coming in and and pleading with them to turn around. They refused, and the prophets over and over again said, um, "God is going to judge you, and He's going to take away your city, and He's going to take away your temple." and as is so often the case, the people just assumed that because they were the children of God, quote-unquote the children of God, because they were descendants of Abraham, they, they had basically a free pass for in perpetuity. Like, God's never going to touch us. We're his children. And in a sense, that is true. Israel, Israel, they are the children of God in a unique sense, and we'll talk more about that. But... but uh, the Bible says that God honors his word above his name. Meaning that he honors his word above his, even his own reputation. So even if it means coming in and judging his very children, the children of God, and the whole world saying, saying wait a second, what kind of God do they serve? It must not be any God at all because look at, they've been wiped out. And the same thing happens today where... There's a church that 
for many years, they may be serving the Lord, but after a while, they turn from the Lord, and the next thing you know, there's a split, or the pastor, uh, you know, has an affair, or there's some kind of financial fraud, and then the whole world, all the media says, look at that. That is supposed to represent the one true God. That's, there's no such thing as a true God. There's no such thing as Christianity. Look what represents it. It's a mess. Uh, but the Bible says God honors his word above his name, above his reputation, and his word that, 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 God, um, that, that God is is a purveyor of righteousness and that he honors righteousness, but he, he judges unrighteousness. God honors his word, and he judges unrighteousness. So they're surrounded now by the enemy. They've already gotten these huge warning signs because Nebuchadnezzar had come in twice. He'd wreak destruction uh, twice. And this this is always the case, you know, before someone... Whenever we counsel someone here, they they they've backslid for a while, and they've they they have been sort of drinking, drugging, or married to their career, and and they've hit the bottom of the barrel. They come in, they always say, you know, the Lord warned me, the Lord warned me here, the Lord warned me there, and that's always the case. But. Um, uh, but uh, they had been warned twice. Nebuchadnezzar had come twice. But the third time was the final time. And he, so they're just about to wipe out this city. That's when this prophecy uh, comes. And he's telling them in the midst of it, he's saying, behold, the days are coming that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah. So Jeremiah has been telling these people, you're going into captivity. But here he tells them, but you will come back. And then in verse 4 and 5, we're going to see, this is something that we saw in the book of Isaiah. All of a sudden, um, because the times are so hard at this time and there's so much misery, God's going to give them a picture of the latter days, of the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. We haven't really seen this a whole lot in Jeremiah up to this point. There have been a couple references, but here is one. And this is what God does uh, when his people are in the midst of judgment oftentimes. He'll give them, he'll give them a picture of the wonderful messianic reign. It says, for thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with a child. So there, there's the, the men, are there, the Jerusalem, the men in Jerusalem are so scared. They're so filled with fear that they're trembling as if, you know, as a, a, a woman in labor. As a woman in labor. I got to tell you. You know, my wife, five kids, she didn't have any medication for any of them. And I remember Sam, and when he was in labor, and seeing that pain, and Stephanie trembling and shaking, boy, did I have a newfound respect for women uh, after that night. And, and it, ju- it didn't just last a few minutes either. Uh, but, but that's what this illusion is too. Have you ever seen a man in, in, in labor with child? That, that, that's how scared scared they were. 
And it's amazing, the heart of the Lord, in the midst of their judgment, he sees these people who are in such sin and rebellion, and they're, so, they're, they're in such fear, they're trembling in fear. Of course, they deserve everything that's coming their way, but he's about to give them a message of hope anyway. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale. Can you imagine that? That's what all the people of Jerusalem look like at this point. Everyone's face was pale. They're so terrified. The Babylonians were like most ancient pagan conquering uh, nations. They were just brutal and cruel when they took over a city. And, they, they, and the, Babylonians, the Babylonians have surrounded the city. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, this commentary, Bible commentators believe that this reference to Jacob's trouble, which I believe there's also a reference in Daniel, is a reference to the seven-year tribulation period that comes, that occurs immediately after the rapture of the church. The Bible says that in the latter days, the church will be raptured, taken out of the world. And at that point, God will pour out his wrath and his judgment. And that time, one of the names of that time is Jacob's trouble. And again, we'll read more about that in Daniel. But is believed that, that this is a reference to that. But he shall be saved out of it. Now, in the book of Revelation, which describes this terrible period of judgment, I mean, you read Revelation, it's just shocking the, the judgment and the wrath that is poured out during that time. Somewhere between, uh, somewhere like a third of people on the face of the earth are killed. Uh, during that time period. But it says he shall be saved out of it, meaning there will be a remnant of Israel saved out of it. We know for, there will be 144,000 um, Jews who will be saved during that time period. They'll become evangelists. In Revelation chapter 12, Israel uh, is given, because the Antichrist is, is, is basically... Uh, the the spirit of the Antichrist has always been hate the Jews, and it's going to be magnified greatly in the time of, of tribulation, uh, the time of Jacob's tr- uh, Jacob's trouble, where the Jacob is a reference to Israel, where the Antichrist is going after Israel. Revelation chapter 12 has a reference to them being saved and escaping to the land of Edom, which is modern day uh, Jordan. But it will, verse 8, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So again, how do we know that in some of these Old Testament prophets, there's, a me- there's an immediate fulfillment um, of the prophecy, but 
uh, the, there's also a future fulfillment uh, as well. And uh, for all intents and purposes, there was never really again a king in Israel after this time. The next king of Israel is going to be the son of David, Jesus Christ. And it says, and, and that's what the reference is in verse 9. Now, Again, it says, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up. In other words, during Jacob's trouble, Israel will be saved out of it, and there will be judgment on the nations, and the David, or the son of David, uh, will be raised up uh, for them. Now, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 34, Ezekiel is prophesying at the very same time as Jeremiah. Now, as we go through the Old Testament, it's important that you sort of understand the chronology. So while Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem or Israel, Ezekiel is saying very much the same thing in Babylon. Ezekiel was one of those carted off to Babylon, 900 miles away, took months to get there, and uh, he's prophesying the same thing. So in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, it says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And you can imagine the comforting words of this type of thing um, during the time where Israel is just being wiped out and judged. Uh, verse 24 in Ezekiel chapter 34 says, And I, the Lord, will be their God, my servant David, a prince among them. Uh, that's, and then in Ezekiel chapter 37, it says, verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them. So we've been talking about on Sunday morning about how even the disciples, we talked about this morning, even the disciples, the 12 apostles themselves, thought that D, uh, Jesus was going to be immediately made king. But, you know, they were sort of conveniently setting aside the scripture that said that he first needed to come as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin. But back in Jeremiah... Uh, chapter 30, verse 10. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. In other words, there's consequences for sin. And when we sin, we can't expect that we will have no consequences. But with the Lord, there's grace. And he says, yes, you're going to be punished. There's going to be correction there. But there's going to be a, re um, a, a restoration. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. So this is one of the difficulties of, of, of reading the prophets. Now he comes right back to the present where the Jerusalem is surrounded by the Babylonians. And when he says your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, he's not talking about a physical wound. He's not talking about a physical affliction. He's talking about their sin. 
and just how deep-rooted their sin was and the damage that their sin had done in their lives. And, and, And he's saying, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, there is no one to plead your cause. You know, you have reached a really, really low place, or the church has, or a nation has, when there is no longer anyone to plead their cause or plead your cause. In Isaiah 59, we read, it says there, the Lord said, I sought for an intercessor and found no one. In Ezekiel 22, it says, I sought for a man among them that they should make up the hedge and stand in the gap that I should not destroy, but I found none. So in the, here, here you, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, all the same thing, that prior to judgment, God was saying, I looked for someone to pray, but there was no one to pray. And so, there, there, so there's nothing between me and judgment. And again, that's why we set aside time for prayer in our church. That's why we set aside time for prayer where we do nothing but intercede in our church. You know, there's a time for, for giving prayer requests for ourselves, but there's also a time to forget about ourselves and just intercede, intercede for the country, intercede for the church. The first time that we started uh, Wednesday morning prayer, which is 6.45 a.m. prayer, we meet every Wednesday, and now uh, Matt's meeting in Dorchester every Thursday. The, for every first time, I, I read from a little booklet on prayer, and there was, there's a prayer uh, just called, there's a book called Intercessory Prayer. It's by Andrew Murray. In the first chapter, he says, if, you're, if in your prayer life, you focus, your main focus on your, is on yourself, you are bound to fail. And that is absolutely is the case. There's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. You need to. We all need to. God cares about our details. It's like I care about what my kids are doing, what their needs are. He wants to know what our needs are. But our prayer life will fail and it'll be so shallow if all we're doing is praying for ourselves. Here you see the, in, in verse 13, there's no one to plead your cause. God is calling people from this church, Calvary Chapel in the city, to plead for, for Boston, for New England, for the United States of America, for the church in the United States of America. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for following a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the gospel. Forgive us for following a Jesus where uh, he is just one of the four cars we park in our four-car garage, and the other one is a 401k and a bank account, and the other one is, uh, you know, upward social mobility. And what was the fourth one this morning? Anyone remember? And the fourth one is your career. Very good. All right. Jessica's memorizing all her, all her lines for her musical this summer, so she's getting good at that. But uh, that's just an advertisement. I think it's opening night is August 3rd on a Friday. Jessica has a lead, uh, one of the lead parts, so I'm going. I know that. 
Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for following an Americanized imaginary Jesus. That's what intercession is. That's why we set aside times to pray. Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. You know, one of the horrible things about sin is that the objects of of sin, whatever it is, drinking buddies, lovers, jobs that you fall in love with, they all forget you. When you turn into a miserable wreck, they're gone. They're out of here. They don't care. It says, all your lovers have forgotten you. There's no one to plead your cause. Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. The clear implication to me is as Jose taught regarding Nineveh, even though God says, yes, there's going to be judgment, if there's a one intercessor, if there are people who are serious about praying, he will turn back judgment and he will bring revival. All your lovers have forgotten you, verse 14. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because the multitude of your iniquities. So verse 15, they were crying. But in... 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes a distinguish, distinguishes between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And I've seen many, many times people weeping over sin, over things they've done in their past, but there's no mention of God amongst their weeping. And that's, what they, that's what's, what's going on here. Why do you cry about your affliction? Verse 16, therefore all those who devour you, shall be devoured. Now, here's the the odd thing, always with Israel. Israel is a special nation. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed, even though God raises up nations to judge Israel because they afflicted Israel, even though God had them do that as an instrument, they too will be judged because it's Israel. It's, it's, It's... it's, we, will, we will read later, actually, if you do, Jeremiah 31, verse 9, it says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, another word for Israel, is my firstborn. So the strange thing you see in the Bible where God devours those who devoured Israel, even though he ordered them to devour Israel because of judgment. And all your adversaries, verse 16, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, and no one seeks her. In other words, when Zion is laid waste and the nations around are saying, ah, Israel is an outcast. This is Zion and no one cares about her. The Lord says, I will show the world that I still care about you and I will restore you. Verse 18, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring back 
the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish and I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Now remember that Jeremiah, we started the chapter, he wrote all this down in a book. And so even after Jeremiah died, people like Daniel pick up this book and they're reading things like this, Zerubbabel and, uh, and the others who came back after the captivity, and they're like, look at this prophecy. We're going to go, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, we're going to go back to Jerusalem, and not only, only that, we're going to be making merry. Verse 20, their children also shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury. A continuing whirlwind, it will fall violently on the head of the wicked. Now, some, of the, some folks believe that this is a reference to the day of the Lord. The fierce, which is um, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, at the end of the season of Jacob's trouble, Jesus returns, and there's judgment on the world. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it, until he has performed the intents of his heart. And here's why they believe that. It says, in the latter days, you will consider it. Meaning in the days of the end. At the end end of history, or the latter days of history, this is what's going to happen. That God's going to come in all his fury. Chapter 31. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Now, that is an oft-quoted verse. And again, this is the darkest hour of Israel's history. I mean, the temple is everything to the Jewish people. If you remember, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Jewish, the, the high priest, Caiaphas, the, the, the priests and the Pharisees met and says, we got to do something about this guy because everyone's turning to him. He raised someone from the dead. we got to do something about this uh, Jewish, I mean, the, the, this Jesus guy. And what did Caiaphas say? He said, he said you know, we got to kill him, essentially is what he said. Because if we don't, he will take away our nation and our place is the literal translation. Their place. The temple was so important to the Jews, they just called it their place. 
That's what it's, and, and the temple was everything to them. And here in chapter 31, it's just about to be flattened, burned to the ground, destroyed. And right in the middle of that, right, right before that, he's telling him, but don't forget this. You're going to see all this judgment, but don't forgive this. Forget this. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Now, I've said this before, you know, to the, the church family, but some of you I know better than others, but virtually all of you in this room, I know that the Lord, that you and God have a history together. That throughout your life, if you look back at your life and you can see certain times where the Lord clearly, clearly moved, sometimes years, years before you were saved, before you came to Jesus. With loving kindness, I have drawn you. And, and God has, has been drawing you. He's been leading you. He's been drawing you into um, a relationship. You know, I grew, I grew up, uh, I, I've been thinking about this recently, that um, <clears throat> I grew up here in, 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 in Massachusetts, and I was originally from the western suburbs, and we went to various churches in the western suburbs. All of them were what you would call, uh, I hate using the term because it's used as a political term so often, but it's a liberal Protestant church, meaning Protestant churches that completely did not believe the Bible. I, I, they, I, they never taught the Bible when I grew up. Never heard anything about being born again. I never heard anything about hell. Never heard anything about a relationship with Jesus. I just, you know, would hear stories every Sunday about, you know, someone who jumped into a lake and, and kill and not killed, <laughs> and rescued a drowning kid. I mean, that, you know, and you're supposed to feel good about that because, wow, the person, they have such good... Such a good heart. That's what I grew up with. And um, the oddest thing is that our, our family, um, most of us were saved. Well, all of us, our immediate family, were, came to the Lord because we moved to Venezuela at some point, which is an overwhelmingly Catholic country. I mean, you have to try hard to find someone who's not Catholic in, in Venezuela. Right, Ernan? Ernan's in Fedswell. And uh, we got, our, my dad, he was, he always sort of, uh, he was a seeker after truth, and he was actually, he was a church hopper our whole life. And uh, eventually he hopped to a, a, a little Baptist church down there, and man, that guy, he taught, the, he taught the gospel. And sometimes I think, how strange, and what would have happened? What would have happened if the Lord didn't move our family to this place, which is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, but then somehow get us to this tiny little church, which which was there, you know, a church of probably forty people, if that, uh, to listen to this guy teach the gospel, and and you look back at your life, and this truth is just affirmed, and every single one of you, I I know, you can say, and your heart can embrace this that the Lord has loved you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness, he has drawn you. He's drawn you. He's drawn you in various ways. Each of you have your own story. 
you have a history with God. And verse 4, it says, Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food, for there shall be a day when the watchman... Uh, will cry out on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country. So this is not a reference to Right here, this is not a reference of the people coming back from exile in, in Babylon. Babylon is, is really, if you look at Israel, Babylon's more uh, to the east. This is a reference of people coming down from the north. This is a reference to what we have been seeing in the last 60 years in Israel. Later on in uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is going to say, you will no longer be called the people who were saved out of Egypt or came from Egypt, you will be called the people who came from the north. And since 1989, there have been at least 850,000 Jews that have come from Russia. Who would have known? And who would have known in 1948, Israel being reestablished? But it's exactly what Jeremiah prophesied and Isaiah as well, as well as other prophets, that in the latter days, Israel would come back, would be reestablished as a nation. You know, how many Babylonians do you guys know? Do you guys know any Babylonians? Uh, do you guys know any Assyrians? Um, I remember I, I was in a class one time and someone asked the, and the teacher made the point, there's no such thing, you know, you hear about 3,000, 4,000 years ago, the nation of Egypt, there's no such thing as an Egyptian in the sense that you can't trace it ethnically like you, you back to Egypt. It's like a completely different people. Actually, Egypt was totally Christianized um, at one point before uh, Islam took over there. But, and, and, you know, Israel was reestablished. And you can, you can look uh, into history. I was a history major, and you can look into history books that were written and other books that were written in the 1800s and see these stories about these guys in the latter 1800s going back to Israel to reestablish a nation. Crazy thing. You know, it says in this Bible 2,000 years ago that this, actually not 2,000, 3,000 years ago, it says in this document, this document is the title to our property here, so you need to give it back to us. I mean, the Seneca Indians used to own the island of Manhattan. Can you imagine them coming back? Well, you know, 200 years ago, uh, we own this island, uh, and we have title to it. Give it back, the whole island of Manhattan. Oh, sure. Here you go, the whole island of Manhattan. Well, I, this was, a, this was a, a, a complete miracle, a sociological miracle, I guess you could say. Every other ethnic people assimilated within generations of being dispersed. And here for thousands of years, and, 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 and their, their, their 
right before our very eyes. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. And you see these documentaries from Jews coming from all over the earth. And then it says, among them the blind and the lame, the women with child, and the one who labors with child together. The one who labors with child uh, will come back. Now, there was, uh, in the 1990s, I think, uh, some of you may have heard about this, but in Ethiopia, they identified uh, in Ethiopia different groups of Jews living in worshipers of Jehovah. They were not Christians in different parts of Ethiopia. And when I was growing up as a kid in the, uh, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, Ethiopia was just a byword for famine and starvation. And it was, it's a different situation today. But when I was a kid, I mean, those, those commercials you see on TV, the kids they would, would put in front of you, they were always Ethiopian kids. And Israel at the time identified these Jews. It was a Marxist nation at the time. No longer is, but it was. It was a Marxist nation at the time. And they wouldn't let Israel go in and get these Jewish Ethiopians. So under, actually, George Bush Sr., not the most recent president, but, the, but his father, who was at the time head of the CIA, they did, this, uh, they did a rescue. It was called Operation Exodus, and they, the, the, Israel actually emptied out its, uh, a bunch of 747s of all their seats, and they brought them in by night or uh, covertly into uh, these different parts of Ethiopia, and within 48 hours, they, uh, they, they actually were able to get 14,000 Ethiopians out. And, and I don't see how this could be true, but they said they got up to 1,200 people in one of these 747s. Of course, they were all starving, and there was like some, there were some, um, joke at the time that they, could, they couldn't get half as many if they were Russian Jews because they were all well fed. But, um, but, um, uh, but anyway, so some rabbis, not Christians, rabbis, actually took this verse right here uh, where it says in the, uh, that during the time of the ingathering where people come from all over the world, the woman with child and the one with labor who labors with children together, a great throng shall return there. I mean, you know, we don't know. We can't, obviously, we can't know for sure whether that was a fulfillment of this prophecy, but the rabbis in Israel uh, concluded that it was because um, apparently uh, 14 babies in this 48-hour period were born inside the plains as they were coming back from Ethiopia. And so... Uh, verse 9, it says, They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water. Now, I don't understand and, and cannot reconcile myself the, the, the difference between the, what the Bible teaches that man has a, a free will and everyone has the ability either to reject God or accept God. And on the other hand, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And there's a clear teaching of election in the Bible. I, I can't rec reconcile those two things. I, only, I just, in my opinion, they can only be reconciled in the mind of God, and, and, but it's clear that the Bible teaches both. Here in verse 9, it says, I will cause them to walk 
by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. Because of God's grace, because of God's grace, you have been made to walk in such a way that you do not stumble in a, in a straight way. We can never, we can simply never take credit for weeks, months, years, or decades that we walk straight, strongly with the Lord. The Bible says that God causes us to do it. Now, I don't understand that because the Bible also says that we can freely reject God or reject his way or we can freely backslide at any point. You can, you know, he's God. He's greater than us. If he were not, if we could understand everything about the, about who God is and what the Bible says about God, it, we, we, there would be nothing to worship. These things are hard to understand, but it says, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. Stumble. It says, for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my first born. Now, I do, I, I don't want to go on too much of a diversion here, but you do uh, hear in, in, in certain denominations and churches who are brothers and sisters in Christ, um, however, they will tell you that, that uh, the Israel being reestablished in 1948 and, and what the things that have happened since then um, are a, have nothing to do uh, with uh, anything in, in the Bible. It's, it's purely a coincidence. And um, they don't think that God has a plan for Israel. And they take, in Romans chapter 9, there are some uh, verses in there. which they used to support that. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, for I would wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. So he's saying I, I would be willing to go to hell if some Jews would, if only some Jews would, or the Jewish nation would, would turn to Jesus. But then it says in verse 6, but it is not that that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so what they say is that when G at the time that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, at that point, Israel ceased as a nation to have any relevance in sort of God's timeline, and that a child of God is a is is a child of is someone who has faith in God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 says, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So there are, there are verses that they use to back it up. Unfortunately, they, uh, you know, they, they, they go to Romans chapter 9 um, and, and they don't continue reading <laughs> because in, in Romans chapter 11, it could not possibly be any clear that there's a future history for Israel because... Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. 
For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down their altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? Elijah, I have reserved myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And then he just goes on um, to say that there is uh, clearly, there's going to be a place in the future for Israel culminating in verse 23 where he says, he's, he's, in, in verses 14 through 22, he's, he's contrasting between uh, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then finally in verse 23 he says, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then so all Israel will be saved. So what he's saying is that after all the Gentiles, the non-Jews who God has meant to be saved, then there will be a, then Israel will be saved. There will be, and this is what you read about in the book of Revelation, there will be a resurgence of, uh, of Israel uh, basically uh, coming back to the Lord. The blindness of Israel, verse 25, Romans chapter 11 says, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, which indicates to me clearly that 2,000 years ago when this was written, after Jesus was crucified and rose again, God is saying Israel the na as a nation has a place in my future timeline. And, and so, you know, we read that in the book of Jeremiah, God said to Abraham, he says, uh, those who bless you, he said to Abraham, and referring to the nation of Israel, Israel who would come from his loins, he said, uh, those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. And so far that I can see in the Bible, that has not been reneged. It's just, uh, that that's, was an unconditional covenant to them. He says here in verse 9 again at the end, he says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd uh, does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Again, this is, this is a reference to the latter days um, where, where Jesus returns. Jesus promised he would return. He promises after the, he, he's going to return. He's after the time of tribulation and Israel will be uh, reestablished. And it says, verse 12, therefore at that time they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden. And by the way, this is a picture of 
when you're blessed by the Lord, when you are blessed, when God wants to bless you, his heart is, this is his heart for you, that your soul would be like a well-watered garden, a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. And, 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 and there's only one way for our soul to be a, a well-watered garden, and that is to open it wide to his word, to let God water it, your soul, every single day and to cover the time of the watering of your garden with prayer. God, show me what your word has for me today. Show me your heart. Speak to me prophetically, Lord. Speak into my life. I need it, Lord. A well-watered garden. I, I love that. That's, that's the heart of the Lord for you, and it's the heart of the Lord uh, for me, too. Because, you know, it's, it's interesting, those who use Romans chapter 9 uh, to say that there's really no such thing as Israel anymore in God's timeline, there is a lot of truth that there are certain promises where, where Paul says, not all of them who are um, of Abraham are of Abraham, only those of faith. A child of God who comes to Jesus by faith actually can step into a lot of these promises, including this very one, that we can, we can claim in Jesus' name, we can claim as a promise that God will make our soul into a well-watered garden because that is, God's, that is God's will always for his son, for his daughter. Again, in verse 9, he calls Israel, he's the father to Israel. They're his firstborn. It's always, the, the, the reason it's so wonderful reading about Israel is because Israel is called his firstborn or his son or his daughter. And, and God's will, you know, God's heart for his son, whether it's Israel or, or us, is really is, is, is very same. There are, we can appropriate so many of these promises, including this one, and I like that. Our souls being a well-watered garden. Verse 13, then, when, when Jesus reestablishes his kingdom, shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make their, them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance. You know, and uh, one thing I just so appreciate about uh, Pastor Scott and Pastor Greg and um, and Joel and, and the rest of uh, of the men who are on our leadership team is they really do appreciate that my number one responsibility as a pastor of this church is to make sure my soul is satiated <laughs> with God because if I don't receive satiated means um, Think of a sponge being dipped into a pail. Someone wanted to help me? Quenched. What? Quenched? Quenched? Oh, satiated. Well, satiated means like every single part of you. You, you know how you do those, um, those experiments with celery when you're in third grade? You put water with red dye in it. You put celery in it, and it turns into a red stick of celery. It's satiated with that red dye. Same thing, though, satiated and saturated. 
<laughs> you can go look it up in dictionary.com. Or actually, there's probably about 20 of you could do that right now. If you look at the word, um, actually, someone do that for me. Look up the word satiated. Satisfied to the full. Yeah, that uh, Peter Olean gets it really quick. So it, it's, it's completely right. Saturated is a definition. It's, and and, and that's, it, it says here that, you know, when God restores Israel, the priest will, the soul of the priest will be satru- uh, satiated with abundance. And that's not talking about f- uh, physical food there. It's talking about the Lord himself. And in Acts chapter 6, and, and just getting back to, to I, I love the leadership of this church because they really appreciate this fact. And Scott reminds me of this, you know, all the time. Look, you're getting too busy. You need to be out in the Dover Woods praying. <laughs> you need to be in the Word of God. You, you need to be allowing your soul to be satiated. Why? Because if you're not receiving, you have, you're not going to be giving. You're not going to be giving anything. A soul that is satiated is able to, to give out, to give out. And, and this a, what a wonderful picture of what a pastor or a priest should be like, their soul is satiated with the word of God. And my people will be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Now, here, here, this, now this comes sort of out of nowhere here. Because he's giving this wonder, wonderful picture um, of the messianic reign, then all of a sudden, uh, and again, we see this in the prophets, right? Uh, we, we see that sometimes even the prophets themselves, the, in the book of Peter, it says that the prophets looked at and read their own prophecies or tried to understand their own prophecy, and, and they, they didn't even fully understand that. And here he goes from the distant, distant future right back to the immediate, and um, he says this, a voice was heard of in Rama. Now, Rama uh, was a city right near, or a town or village right near Jerusalem. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, this is a picture of judgment, a judgment that was about to happen. Rachel, who was Jacob's wife, Jacob um, is the father of the you know the twelve tribes of of Israel all go back to uh, to uh, to Jacob. Rachel was one of his wives, and and here the picture is they're weeping. Now, many of us are familiar with this prophecy. Where's this from? That's right, the book of Matthew, when the Magi come from. Actually, they come from Babylon, and it. Um, they came from Babylon in the beginning of Matthew, and they had seen the star in the east, or from the east, and 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 they knew that the star was, you know, was a guide to them of where the Messiah would be, and they and they went um, to Jerusalem. And they said, we've seen the star of the Messiah. Can you tell us where he is? And, you know, everyone says there was three wise men. There's probably, it never, never does it say there was three wise men. Just like never, nowhere in the Bible says that Eve ate an apple. It doesn't say that anywhere. Um, <laughs> these things crop up. But there, it says all of Jerusalem was stirred, probably because there was many more than just three wise men. 
And they were all stirred because these people had come, you know, where's the Messiah? Where's the king of Israel? Well, Herod, King Herod at the time, even secular historians, you can read about King Herod. The guy was a, a paranoid freak. He, it, said, it, was safe, it, was said, it was said of Herod at the time that it was safer to be a pig in his household than a son because he killed his sons. He, he killed wives. He killed so many people. And, and he was, uh, he said, uh, he, he asked the, the prophets and the scholars in Jerusalem, Herod did, well, um, you know, where, where's the Messiah to be born? They said, well, Bethlehem. And so Herod said to the wise men when they went off, well, when you find him, will you come back and tell me? Well, they did find him, but they were warned in a, a, a dream not to go back and tell Herod. And so they went away and Herod found out about it. And he was furious. Why? Because he just want, he wanted to find out about where Jesus was so he could go kill him. There's a king that was totally, totally consistent with his, his nature. And uh, so Her- Herod, what does he do? He orders all the kids in Bethlehem, two years old and, uh, and younger, to be killed. And, and Matthew actually refers to this as, um, a, as that event was a, in, in, in addition to being a fulfillment when Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and wiped out the city where the women were weeping because their children had been, had been murdered. Uh, Matthew also quotes this as well with the women weeping in Bethlehem because they're their children, their young ones had been, had been murdered uh, by Herod. Verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping. So it comes back to the immediate, or this is going to be, this is going to, actually, this is going to be a, a comforting pro, uh, prophecy to those who, whose families were, were affected by Nebuchadnezzar, who was about to come and destroy the city. Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me. I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. So at some point during their exile, so, so Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in, they were going to be exiled to Babylon, Babylon, and at that time they would begin to repent. You know, right up until the time Jerusalem was wiped out, wiped out, there was no repentance. It was just Jeremiah, and that's it. Jeremiah against everyone. No repentance. But this is a reference in verse 18 here uh, of eventually during the exile in Babylon, they're going to cry out, surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against them, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. And, you know, it's so hard for us to get a correct picture of what God's heart is for us. His heart yearns for us. Even in the midst of our rebellion, his heart yearns for us. Verse 20 continues, I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. 
Now, don't ask me what this means. A woman shall encompass a man. Some people think that's a reference to the Virgin Mary giving birth to to Jesus. Uh, It's unclear what that means. Uh, a woman shall encompass or surround a man. But it's, it's, it is a picture of, of the Lord doing a new thing um, in the earth. And, and so maybe that is what it is at the time. I'm going to stop there in verse 22. And, but uh, these, these sort of earth-shaking, heaven-shaking events that happen throughout the book of, uh, or prophesied about or spoken about in the book of Jeremiah. And, uh, but through it all, as bad as things get, as terrible as things get, it's, it's, it's during the darkest, darkest times where you have some of these wonderful prophecies where we see the heart of the Lord uh, for his people.